Well, when Steve Tran of Westminster, California, closed the door of his apartment, he thought he had seen the last of the cockroaches that shared his place. Because as he walked out the door, he left 25 activated bug bombs. I don't think this has turned up. He left 25 activated bug bombs there in the apartment. Now, as the fumes reached the pilot light of his stove, it ignited. It blew the doors off his apartment. It broke out all the windows and it set his furniture on fire. The canister said that two cans would have done the job. It resulted in over $10,000 of damage. And the roaches? Well, he saw them walking around again a week later. Proverbs 29.11 tells us a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. The Bible doesn't say that a wise man never gets angry. What it says is he keeps his anger under control. And we're going to talk about that today as you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Because in Ephesians chapter 4, what we see here is the Bible tells us we should be angry, but it's in the right context and under God's control. In Ephesians 4:25 through 27, it tells us, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are, one, we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. When you look at verse 25, it starts with the word, therefore. And what that's doing is tying in with what we saw last week where it says we're to change our thinking to match the change in our life. And here Paul is giving us some practical things that should be changed in our life. One of them that we'll talk about next week in depth is where he says we're to control our tongue. We're going to talk about taming our tongue next week. And then the other thing he tells us here is to control our anger. Now, when it comes to anger, it's not always bad. In fact, what you see there in verse 26 is it's a command. It's an imperative in the Greek text. It says, be angry, be angry, and yet do not sin. Now, that may seem surprising because back in Ephesians 4, 2, we were told to be gentle and patient. And there what we saw is the, the word used for patient means to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. It described the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. It spoke of self-restraint, which does not retaliate a wrong. There was a pastor who was walking down the street one day, and he saw two men that were in a fist fight. And he ran up, and he, he broke the fight up. And as he did so, he noticed that one of the guys in the fight was a member of his congregation. And he looked at him, and he said, Brother Perkins... You know what the good book says about turning the other cheek? And this man looked at his pastor and he said, Well, pastor, he hit me in my nose and I've only got one of those. (laughs) Now, in the Bible, we're told to turn the other cheek. And yet, I think what happens when people see that in Luke 6.29 or Matthew 5.39 is sometimes they misunderstand fully what that means. It doesn't mean that as a Christian, you're a punching bag. It doesn't mean as a believer that you suffer silently as wrongs are done to you. It doesn't mean that you let people always run you over. As you look at Jesus Christ himself, the one who said, turn the other cheek, you find an example in John chapter 18 where Jesus did not turn the other cheek. He was on trial. And as he was being tried in preparation for the crucifixion, there were many abuses that were being done to him. And one of them was where a guard punched Jesus in the face. 
Jesus had responded to the high priest and the guard hit Jesus. And in John 18:23, Jesus answered and said to him, If I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? You see, Jesus didn't say, hit me again. Here's the other cheek. Do it again. What he did was he confronted the wrong. Now, as he confronted the wrong, I want you to notice that he did it, as we saw earlier in Ephesians, where we were told to have strength under control. I want you to remember that earlier as Jesus Christ was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, you'll recall Peter whipped out his sword. He cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. There was a fight that could have happened. And Jesus at that moment told Peter, Peter, put away your sword. He said, I could call down legions of angels. If I want to fight, I could wipe these guys out. And at that moment as this soldier hit Christ who was God, God could have wiped this dude out with one word. He could have wiped out the soldier and everybody else around, but Jesus exercised strength under control. He confronted the wrong, but he didn't overblow the situation. He didn't wipe everybody out. There are times that we have to yield our rights as Christians, and then there are times it's right to fight. And as we do these, as we deal with it, as we have a righteous anger, what we need to do is first define our anger. And we need to make sure that it's something that breaks the heart of God. And not that we had to break hard because somebody cut us off in traffic. As you get angry, is it because it's something that breaks the heart of God? As we look at this passage, in it, Paul uses three different Greek words for anger. One of those is found in verse 31. It's the Greek word thumos. And Thumas describes a turbulent commotion. It's this boiling agitation of feelings and passion. It explodes and then it subsides. Next to the word Thumas, you could put a picture of the Incredible Hulk. Ever seen these Incredible Hulk moments where something happens, he gets angry, the eyes change, and all of a sudden this, this, you know, massive man erupts and does all this damage. There's this explosion. And then it subsides. That's not the kind of anger that we as Christians are to have. In fact, in verse 31 where it's used, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, there's the word, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, another Greek word for anger that's used is there at the end of verse 26. It's paraorgismos. And this word describes an anger that is accompanied by irritation, exasperation, embitterment. You think of a, a, a little thing that bothers you and it starts to grow and grow and grow. And as it takes root in your life, it takes over. Now, you can start out with a type of anger that is righteous, but it can become unrighteous when you allow it to be like this. It's what we see the tragic examples where somebody goes in and bombs an abortion clinic or kills people that are in the abortion industry. As believers, we can have a righteous anger when the innocent lives of babies are being taken, and yet God never calls us to take a life. He doesn't call us to become embittered and overwhelmed and let this anger take us over. This is this type of anger here, this paraorgismos. Now, the next word, the third word for anger that is the right kind of anger is orgidzo. This is an abiding and settled habit of the mind. It's aroused under certain conditions. It it speaks of a righteous reaction to injustice. Uh, We see an example of this in Mark chapter 3. There Jesus Christ was 
uh, in one of the many traps the Jewish leaders were trying to set, Jesus was in the synagogue. He was in church to worship. And as he's there, they bring in a, a man who has a physical ailment. He needs to be healed. And these guys are trying to set a trap. It would be like bringing somebody in, putting them right there on the front row and saying, you know, what are you going to do about it? Here's a person in need. And here's how it's described in Mark 3, 4 through 5. As, As this is happening, it says, And Jesus said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And it tells us the religious leaders remain silent. And after looking around at them with anger, orgase, our word here, it says, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. You see, Jesus had a righteous anger about these hypocritical leaders who cared more about rules than they did about the people that God cared about. God had already said through Jesus earlier in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. You see, he had a righteous anger. Another example of that is found in John chapter 2. There we talked about this when we took a tour of the temple, and you'll recall that there was the outer area where the Gentiles would, would come to pray and worship the Lord. It was called Solomon's Portico. And that area had been turned into a den of thieves. They were money changers there. They were merchandising. People were not able to come and worship God. And as Jesus saw this, he became angry. And it says he, he made a cord, uh, a whip out of cords, and he turned over money changers' temples, and he went in and he cleared the place out. Now you may think, well, that sounds like thumos to me. That's this explosive anger. Jesus is tearing the place up. And yet as you look at the examples where there is a righteous anger, not only is there a righteous wrong, but then there's a right way to deal with it. Because as soon as Jesus cleared these people out, the anger stopped. There was a, there was a reaction to the wrong. He corrected the wrong, and then his action stopped. In, in righteous anger, there's a deliberate purpose, which is to right the wrong. And once it's accomplished, anger and action stop. Aristotle, who was a philosopher, once said, anybody can become angry. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy. It's not easy. But as believers, we can do it if we're under the control of the Holy Spirit with whom we're filled. When we respond as God calls us to do, we can have control of our anger and live as God wants us to do. One place where our anger shows up is in our speech. It's why Paul pairs talking about our tongue that we're going to spend time in next week here. How many of you here this morning can think of a time where your out-of-control anger led to an out-of-control tongue? And you think of the damage that was done as those words got right about here and you wanted them back and it was too late. When it comes to anger in our life, one of the root causes is when we allow it to take root in our lives as we dwell on the ways we've been hurt. This is why we're told in verse 26, do not let the sun go down on your anger. The longer we let something that embitters us remain, the longer it's going to grow. It's going to get roots and it's going to get bigger. It's going to have tentacles. It's going to get into every area of our life. Now, when it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, I was counseling with a couple one time that had taken this literally. They called and they said, Pastor, we have to get in and see you today. We have literally been up all night long fighting, and we have to see you because we, we haven't resolved the issue. 
And as they came in, they were worn and haggard, and they looked like they had been run over by a truck. They literally had stayed up the entire night fighting. And I said, while I applaud the fact you were wanting to deal with this, um, the literal meaning here is not stay up and fight all night. What God is telling you to do here is to set an expiration date on your anger. You know, there are times there's wisdom to withdraw from a fight. Have you ever been in a situation and it just seems to be escalating and growing and growing and you're tired or they are and you know it's not a good and nothing's getting solved? There's a time sometimes to pull back, to bring in a mediator, another counselor, just to let the temperature, you know, go down on the situation. Like I said, what we see here is more of the idea of putting an expiration date on your anger. When it says, let the sun go down, it it means let it go. If we allow unresolved anger to stay and sour in our minds, it's like old sour milk. Have you ever poured milk into a cup and it kind of clumped into the cup? Yeah, so I mean, oh. Well, that's what your anger looks like when it sours. It just becomes this repulsive poison as it, as it simmers. Think of the damage you're doing to others and to yourself. As it just becomes this, this poison in your body that eats you up. You know, it's, it, vengeance has been described sometimes as drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. And that's what we do sometimes. We just let this anger consume us. Now, when we do this, when we, when we store away our past hurts, look at what verse 27 says. It says, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The word for opportunity there is the Greek word tapos. Has anybody ever used a topographical map? Well, this is where you get it from. Topos describes a place, a piece of property, some territory. And as you think in terms of your life, whether it's your mind, your heart, uh, who you are as believers, in Ephesians 3.17, we were told to make our hearts a place where Christ could dwell. And that word literally meant to be completely at home in. It means we signed over the deed 100% of who we are to God. But what this is picturing is while we said, God, you have, you have possession of me and my heart and my life, what we've done is we said, but I'm keeping this little closet. I have this place. And God, you get everything but this tapas, this place where I'm going to store my hurts and my hate, and I'm going to put things away, my blacklist and my revenge. And this is just for me and, and Satan to deal with as we go out and get people. And that tapas means a foothold. And it's like establishing a beachhead in wartime where once you get a piece of ground and you can begin to bring in more and more troops and logistical support, you can go out and take more and more territory. And that's what Satan does. When we give him a foothold in our life, in our heart, our mind, when we hold on to hate and we harbor it, what we're doing is giving him an area to begin to, to take over more and more. And as we pile up the way people have hurt us, as we allow bitterness to take root, more and more ground is lost. The Bible says we're to be angry and not sin. And whether it's this issue of anger or stealing or slander that are mentioned in the next verses, we're told they all grieve God. Look at verses 30 through 31. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This this word for bitterness, it's translated here, means resentful harshness. It speaks of a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. It's, it's that spite that harbors resentment, and it keeps a list of wrongs. 
Paul said in verse 26, let it go. As the sun goes down, let your anger go. And he says here in verse 31, let these things be put away from you. This, this word translated as put away means to bear away what has been raised up. It literally means as this issue is raised, you carry it away and you get rid of it. Many of you here saw the movie Forrest Gump. If you saw the movie Forrest Gump, you know Tom Hanks played this character of this young simpleton who grew up into an amazing person, had all these great adventures and did all this stuff in life. But there was another main character in the movie named Jenny. Remember, Jenny was this little girl that grew up on an adjacent uh, piece of property in this dilapidated house in the middle of a field. And, and Jenny had a horrible life, and it reflected in, in how she reacted, and the, the choices she made all through life were bad ones. But Forrest kept coming into her world. And at one point in the movie, Forrest and Jenny are, are grown. And uh, they're walking along in the woods, and Jenny's barefoot carrying her sandals, and they're smiling and having a good time. And, and it's just a beautiful day. They're walking along, and as they come through this clearing of the trees, suddenly Jenny stops. And the, and the smile on her face disappears instantaneously. And, and looking out ahead down this little road is her childhood home, a, a place that was a place of sorrows and sexual abuse. And as Jenny sees this and is reminded of her past, she walks with this dead expression on her face closer to the house as Forrest is standing back. And the, the shoes that are in, her, are in her hand, she suddenly hurls at the house, and Forrest reacts with shock. And as they bounce off the house, she reaches down, tears streaming down her face, kind of frustrated, screaming. She starts hurling one rock after another after another, breaking a window, knocking into the house, and she's just throwing as many rocks as she can. And suddenly all the rocks are gone, and she's exhausted, and she falls to the ground in tears. And as Forrest moves in to comfort her, as he comes alongside her, his, his little voiceover goes, sometimes in life there just aren't enough rocks. And this is what some of us are like in life. We, we have a pain from our past. We have something real that we have a right to be angry about, but it's taken resident in our life and it's, it's taken over. And what we find is we're hurling rocks at it. We're trying to do things to, to express our anger. And what we find is sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the hurt. You remember later in the movie, Forrest Gump comes back with a man in a bulldozer. And he bulldozes the house. He does what we're told to do here. He, he puts it away. He carries it away and removes the reminder of the pain. That's what God is calling us to do. Now, I'm not telling you that it's easy. I'm not telling you as a, a preacher with some pious platitude, just saying, oh, forgive and forget. That's not at all what we're talking about today. As I said, you have a right to be angry. Many of you have, have suffered in, in just horrible ways like this fictional character Jenny did. I've suffered in my own life. I've shared with you before about growing up. I had a father who was a wife and child abuser. Very severe abuse. I fought back against my father. At the age of 16, I was kicked out of the house because I was winning the physical fights against my dad, protecting my mom and my five brothers and sisters. I hated my dad. I was angry. I carried around this, this hurt. 
And about six months after I was kicked out of the house, I came to faith in the Lord. I came to understand the gospel of grace. And as I became a believer, as I began to grow in my faith, I realized I had to do what God had done for me. Jesus forgave those who had hurt him, and I knew I had to forgive my father. Now, it wasn't instantaneous. I fought God. And it wasn't until I was 19 and I was in my junior year at the University of Texas in Austin that I came to a point where I realized I have to go back to Dallas and I have to tell my dad I forgive him. My parents had divorced by then. They were, you know, nobody in the family had anything to do with my dad. And I found him and I, I called him and I said, I want to take you out to dinner. And we were driving up Central Expressway in Dallas doing about 70 and I'm talking to my dad and I'm telling him, I forgive you for what you did. And my father looks at me with just a dead expression and he says, well, I'm glad you forgive me, but I never did anything wrong to you. And I can tell you as a 19-year-old young man at that moment, my first initial reaction was this welling up, this thumos anger within me. I wanted to reach over, open the door, and push him out on the highway doing 70 up the road. But I didn't do that. Instead, at that moment, I breathed a prayer and I said, Lord, I need your help. And God gave me this overwhelming peace. And I just turned to my dad and I said to him, I said, you may not understand what you've done. I said, but my forgiveness is mine to give to you and I give it to you. And at that moment, you know what I found? I thought all those years I had my dad in a prison. I had him, you know, he was missing the relationship with me and my siblings. He didn't give two thoughts to it. I was the guy who'd been in prison all those years, carrying around this hate and harboring this, this bitterness weighed down with all of this anger. And at that moment, I found when I opened the prison door, it was me who walked out. I was the one who was set free. Some of you have been in airports where you've watched people, you know, going through uh, the terminal with all their luggage. You see the people who have nothing, and they're just kind of strolling through, and they can weave around the crowd. Then there are the people with the little rolly bag, and, you know, they're, they're, they're doing okay, but they have to kind of dodge people, and every now and then the thing flips over, and they're you know, trying to get it back up. And then you see the, the, the person or the group that has one of those luggage carts, right? Just piled high. And there are, you know, suitcases. People are on the side holding them. Excuse us, we're coming, you know. And they're trying to maneuver through and stuff keeps falling off and they keep picking it up and putting it on. Some of us this morning are like that luggage cart. We've been adding all the hurt and the hate and the pain of the past and everything that everybody's done to us, and and we're keeping it all with us, and we're moving along, and we're wondering why we're crippled as we're crawling through life. And we're just weighted down with all this baggage. What God tells us is, let it go. He says, come to the cross and check your bags. Drop them at the foot of the cross. Nail them to the cross and all their ugliness. And leave it there. He says, I'll take care of it for you. I'll lose your luggage for you. I've washed it away with the blood of my son. I offer you forgiveness this morning if you'll just come to me and let it go. Now, as I'm telling you to do that, again, I'm not telling you that it's easy. Remember, it took me a process of a couple of years. And some of you this morning are sitting in a situation today where the hurt and abuse is fresh. 
If this is ongoing abuse in your life right now, I'm not telling you to just turn to the person and say, okay, it's great, for, I forgive you. What I, first thing you need to do is get safe. If you're in an ongoing abusive relationship or some situation where pain is happening to you, you need to be safe. And if you're not sure how to do that, I want you to come and talk with me or one of our staff members after the service, and confidentially we will help you to get into a safe situation. And then we will begin to work with you on the forgiveness and the reconciliation that comes down the road. But the first step is to to make sure that you or your kids or others are safe. As you're in that situation, if you're in a past situation where the, the pain of the past is done, somebody like in that movie, the, the lady's father had died. He was gone. And some of you are facing situations like that. You're saying, but the person is gone. I can't even go to them and tell them I forgive them now. What do I do? There's still ways to offer forgiveness and to, to release it, even if you can't physically talk to the person. Or you may talk to the person and find, as I did with my dad, they look at you and go, Your problem, not mine. I never did anything wrong. In those moments, what you need to do is think of a scar on your body. Many of us have cut ourselves or been hurt in a way, and you can look down and see a physical scar on your body. And and the hurt that you're carrying this morning is real. There are scars that will stay with you in life. But you know what a scar tells you? It tells you two things. One, there was an injury, and two, there's been healing. You see, when a scar happens, it means that past injury has been healed. And while it's there and it can create limitations or or painful reminders of the past, it tells you you survived. And, And you don't have to be controlled by that past event. You know, my dad stole a lot of the joy of my childhood, but I determined that he wouldn't steal the joy from the rest of my life. Because when I let it go, I was the one who was set free. And some of you remember the the way this story with my dad ended about two years ago. Uh, I got a call from my father, actually from a hospital where he had been taken. He was in critical condition. He had been beat up and robbed, and he was indigent, and he was homeless, and he was in a hospital. And they said, somebody needs to come and take care of him. And I went back to Dallas a second time. And I got him in an assisted living position, took care of his physical needs, and I talked to him again. And I was able to lead my dad to the Lord before he died two years ago. I can't promise you that's how your situation will end. But I can tell you that if you are carrying around hurt and hate in your life, you're the one who's a prisoner. And God wants you to be set free from that. He offers you the ability to leave it with him As we hold on to this hate, remember the the word for anger is it takes root and it gives birth to what we see in verse 31. It says bitterness and wrath and clamor. This word clamor means shouting and brawling. Some of you wonder, why are you so angry? Why do you explode at the drop of a hat? And some of it is this bitterness that's, that's resident in you. There's slander and malice, it says. These things mean ill will, wickedness, bad feelings. And it says, put these things away from you, along with thumos, this explosive, violent outbreak of anger. This, this anger is like a volcano that just suddenly erupts. There was a woman who, who had an explosive anger and she would just blow up. And she'd tell her friends, well, it's okay, because I kind of explode and then I feel better. 
And, and one of her friends said to her one time, yeah, but when you explode, it's like a shotgun blast going off. You feel better, but we get hit with the buckshot. We're all left with the damage, the residual damage. And that's what some of you are doing to others. You say, well, it's not a big deal. I blow up, it's over. And Have you ever seen the old pressure cookers? These little ones that had the little top that went around. You know, my mom used to have one of those. And as a kid, I was fascinated. You'd watch this thing up on the stove and this little top was going around. Every now and then we'd kind of sneak in there and we'd, we'd take the, the little turny thing off the top of the pot. And some of you were going, oh, not a good choice. Because you know what happens when you do that? All of a sudden, shh, I mean, if it's off there too long, the whole top will blow through the roof of the house. And so... As you think about the anger in your life, some of you need to learn to be more like a pressure cooker where it's, there's that little and you're saying, okay, Roger, I, I, I got this anger in my life. What do I do with it? Well, you find productive ways to let off little bits of it so there's not this explosion. If your supervisor at work yells at you, if you had horrible traffic coming home and five people cut you off and everybody was honking at you for no reason, don't pull right into the driveway, walk in the house and kick the dog and yell at the kids. I mean, that's not going to help anybody. Stop two blocks from home. Get out of your car and walk around the block. Run around the block five times if you have to. Get some of the anger out before you walk through the door. I knew a man who had what he called the trouble tree. And the trouble tree was this this uh, tree on the sidewalk by where he would park his car. And he would pull up after work and he would get out of his car and he would walk over to the trouble tree and he'd reach over and he'd grab a hold of one of the branches. Sometimes he'd strip all the leaves off it. It had been such a great day. But he'd, he'd grab onto this tree and he would stand there Uh, transferring all of the anger and frustration from his day to the tree. Now, the wife and kids knew that when Daddy was at the trouble tree, leave him alone. He said he could look and see his kids with their face pressed against the window sometimes, and they're like, Daddy's there a long time. Mom's like, just leave, leave Daddy alone. And when Daddy had transferred all the problems to the trouble tree, then he would walk up the sidewalk and he'd come in the house. And then what he said is in the morning when I would walk out of the door to go to work, I would stop at the trouble tree to take on all the problems from work that I needed to deal with. And he said, you know, Roger, it was amazing. There were many mornings I got out there and found that most of the problems had blown away in the night. Remember, let the sun go down on your anger. When we let things go, often we find they're they're just not... But when we hang on to them and we let them take root and they become this bitterness in our life, they take control of us. Now, if you don't have a trouble tree, then get some paper that's made from a tree to let go of your anger. And you can do what uh, Secretary of War Stanton did one time. He served under President Lincoln. And Stanton had been in a conflict with one of the generals, one of the commanders. And this commander had unfairly uh, criticized Stanton publicly. There was this animosity between the two. And Lincoln could see that these two, their, their working relationship was damaged. And so Lincoln told Stanton, I want you to sit down and I want you to write a letter to this general. And I want you to outline all the wrongs. Just tell him everything you really think. And so as Stanton's writing the letter, Lincoln is standing there over his shoulder watching And he's reading along and he goes, oh, that's first rate, Stanton. Good job. Prick him hard. Keep at it. 
And encouraged by Lincoln's uh, uh, statements, Stanton began to write even more and just started filling page after page of all the past animosity between the two. And he's going, first rate, keep at it, good job. And finally, Stanton exhausts himself, he's done, and he takes these parchments, starts rolling them all up to stick in a pouch to send out to the commander in the field. And Lincoln says, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm sending the dispatch with the letter, of course. And Lincoln said, oh, that's not what you do. And he reached in and he took the letter and he walked over to a stove and he threw it in and he burned it up. And he said, now take some paper again and rewrite the letter. And you do that as many times as you have to in order to get all your anger out. But you don't send the letter. And some of you need to do that. Some of you need to put down how you feel. You need to to articulate your anger. You need to deal with it. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is dealing with it and giving it to God to carry away. Now, many of us don't use paper and pen anymore. We use email. So as you sit down to do this on email, let me make a recommendation to you. Would you first remove the address to the person you're going to send it to? Because I know people who have accidentally hit send before they meant to. I've gotten emails that are quickly followed up by another email or even a phone call that says, "Uh, please don't read what I just sent you. (laughs) And I'm like, it's too late. I already did. (laughs) If you need to pour out your frustration, do it in a Word document, and then when it's right, you can cut and paste it over. But what you don't do is hit reply, and especially don't do a reply all Whenever I get an email, you know what I do? I look at the date and time stamp. And you know what I find? It's amazing how many emails I get that are sent at 2 or 3 in the morning. And those are usually doozies. Because what they mean is the person couldn't sleep, they were walking the floor, they were angry, and they sat down and they gave you a piece of their mind they could ill afford to lose as they send that. Or there's batch copying where that's just electronic gossip. Where you include all your friends and other people. And what is the purpose of what you're sending out? And as you do that, as you think through writing out all your frustration and getting it out, again, the best thing to do is just hit delete. Now, if it's something God has laid on your heart that you need to talk to the person about and deal with them, well, first of all, it's a lot more productive to do it face-to-face because in an email You can't read the person's motives. You can't see their body language. And you attribute all the wrong things to it often. And so have the conversation with the person. But as you do so, have it where there's strength under control, where you've prayed about it, you've talked to God, you've asked Him to help you respond. When it comes to this email situation of responding, think of it like a tennis game. You know what happens when somebody hits a ball over the net and you're on the other side and you're waiting to receive it and you hit it back? What does the other person do? They just hit it right back and the game goes on as you volley back and forth. What would happen if the person hits one of these email volleys over the net and you don't respond? You just let it lie. Well, the game ends, doesn't it? Now, as I said, there are times you have to give a response, but it doesn't have to be immediate. Because you sit down and your immediate reaction is, oh, and then you send it and you go, I shouldn't have said all that. As we respond, there needs to be a righteous response, a right way and in the right time. 
Instead of fighting fire with fire, we're called to do what our Savior did in verse 32. It says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. The word be here is genomai, and it literally means to become. It means to become kind. In Ephesians 4.13, we saw that we have not yet attained to the full measure of the perfection in Christ. And so what it says is we don't respond always as righteously as we should, but we need to be working toward that. We need to become kind. The word kind means to show a sweet and generous disposition. Now, kindness is not just in what you say, but it's how you say it. Proverbs 15.1 says a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a kind, but in a harsh word stirs up anger. So you turn away wrath instead of stirring it up like a spoon. It says we're to be tender-hearted or compassionate. Now this is an interesting word. It's only found one other time in the whole Bible. It's found in the New Testament in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 9. And there it says to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Do you know what the context of that passage in Peter is? It's in the relationship of a husband and wife. Are there any married couples here this morning who maybe need to change the way you react to one another? Do you immediately attribute the wrong? Do you immediately take things to the the nuclear option when you've been hurt? Is it they got me, I'm going to get them back? Or do we show this type of forgiveness and love to one another? This word was a medical term that was used to describe the healthy functioning of the intestines. You see, we speak in our day of the heart as kind of being the seat of emotion. Well, in Greek thought, the intestines... Were the, were the seed of emotion. Imagine getting Valentine's with intestines, a colon on it. Well, that's what they did. And it's really a, a, an appropriate word because it means to feel it in your guts. Have you ever been harboring hate or anger and you just kind of have that pit in your stomach? There's that anger and you're all, oh, I just don't feel good and it's making me sick. Well, that's what it is. Instead of carrying around this rock in our gut, God says, get rid of it. He says, get rid of that malice and ill will by exercising forgiveness. Paul reminds us we're to forgive each other as we have been forgiven by God. The Greek word for forgiving here means to bestow favor unconditionally. To bestow favor unconditionally. You see, so many times people say, well, I'm not going to forgive that person because they don't deserve it. No, they don't. That's why it's called forgiveness. You're bestowing favor unconditionally. Remember how God forgave us? Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve his forgiveness, but he bestowed it on us. And as those who are his children his sons and daughters, those who are part of the family of God. He says, I want you to forgive one another. I want you to forgive others who have hurt you. Not only does it demonstrate his grace, that's the root of the word charis, grace, but it also ends up freeing us. I don't know what hate and hurt you brought in here this morning. 
But God invites you to take it and to nail it to the cross this morning. He invites you to take the luggage that you dragged in here this morning. Just leave it in your seats. As we're getting ready to leave in a few moments, just leave it where you are. Say to God, God, I've been carrying this this hate, this hurt, this pain of the past, and I don't want to do it anymore. I want to leave it here with you. I need your help, God. I need you to to help me let this stuff go. I I need your forgiveness. Some of us here need to experience God's forgiveness in the first place. Maybe you walked in here this morning and and you said, I I don't even know why I'm here. I don't deserve to be in church. If people around me knew who I was and what I had done, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. Friends, that's a lie of our enemy, Satan. He wants you to think God doesn't love you, that he's done with you because of your past. But God tells us not that I love you this much or this much, but I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died on the cross to take away the penalty of your sin, to wash you clean, white as snow, to forgive you and make you a part of his family. He says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And then he says to those of us who have been saved, who have made a mess of our life since then, he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter what you've done in the past, God offers you his forgiveness. And he wants us who have been forgiven to offer that forgiveness to others as well. Not only to demonstrate his love to them, but also to release us from carrying around this pain and the luggage and the the prison that we're in. So as we end now, I want us to go to the Lord in prayer. I want you just to bow your heads where you are. And I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the pain of the past, the hurt you might have carried in here this morning. And I want you to ask God to help you leave it here. You can leave it in the pews. You can nail it to the cross in all its ugliness. And Christ will wash it away. He'll set you free from your sins this morning. And he'll help you to begin to have that freedom that he wants you to have as you walk with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, talk to God, and ask him for help in these areas, and then I'll close this in a moment. Lord God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that while we were unlovable, sinners in rebellion, people who were not only running from you, but in some cases just outright thumbing our noses at you as we lived in sin, you didn't reject us, you didn't leave us, but instead you left your throne in heaven to come to earth to go to the cross and suffer the indignities and die a horrible death to pay that penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And Lord, even as you were hanging there suffering and they were gambling at the foot of the cross, gambling over your clothes and hurling insults and spitting at you and laughing, you said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. 
We thank you, Lord, that even though you know everything we've ever done, that you still loved us and you died for us to make us a part of your family. We thank you, Lord, that your arms are still open wide, waiting to welcome us home into heaven if we've not come to you. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here today who's not yet received you as their Savior, that today would be the day where they find forgiveness and they run into your arms. And, Father, for the rest of us who have been forgiven in the past, Lord, some of us have walked away from you and we want to come home. And we thank you that you offer that. Like the prodigal son, you've been looking down the road waiting for us and and you want to say, welcome home, son or daughter. Father, for others of us, we know you, we love you, but we're having trouble loving others. There are people who have hurt us. They've let us down. Would you help us, Lord, to extend your forgiveness, the grace and mercy that we've been given? Would we show that to others? Lord, would you send us out of here now as those who are free from some of the pain of the past, those who have carried in weight and and hurt and harboring hate from the past, would we leave it here? And we walk out of here free, men and women, those who have been marked by your grace. And Lord, would you help us to communicate that? Maybe through a letter, a phone call, or a personal visit, letting somebody know, I've forgiven you for the past. Lord, would you help us to be like your son, Christ? We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. There are going to be prayer leaders at the front. If you need somebody to talk to this morning, we'd love to pray with you. Will you stand and sing this closing song of worship?